clap after that. I don't know. Is that is that okay? Can we do that? I mean, that's like really. I'm like, wow. Like a whole bunch of years ago. I need to put this on. Actually, I could probably do it without it, right? A whole bunch of years ago, okay, my dad, we used to heat with wood growing up. We are super sustainable, even though I didn't realize it. It was just kind of an embarrassment at the time. Now it would have been like my dad would be the coolest thing in the world. Sustainable energy, you know, crazy. We cut wood in the fall. We burn it in the wintertime, warm twice. At any rate, he's out in the woods, right? And, uh, and, and, and he espies something that, that is kind of unique, okay? He, he spies a, a pretty mature white oak, okay, probably about... Um, probably about five feet in diameter, okay? And, and the unique thing about this white oak is that like a beaver had just gone nuts on it. Well, started to go nuts on it. Now, typically beaver like something a little bit softer, like a aspen or a popple or a poplar, you know, even small birch, okay? So a full-grown white oak is, is hard, okay? And it's a bit of a challenge for a beaver. And this beaver, little beaver, little beaver going crazy on the white oak, you know? And, and, and it kind of loses interest because even though beaver have to chew to keep their teeth down so they don't grow into their skulls and kills them, little side note, nature is cruel, okay? The... It was a little bit too much work. So my dad found it while cutting wood, and he, and he saved the stump, okay? He actually found two of these, saved both of them, and they were in the basement family room, my little den area that my dad had, fire warm, gun safe, all that kind of stuff. And then when my dad died, I ended up with one of them. Sure, I'll take it. Carted it down to South Minneapolis, then carted it to New Prague, then carted it back up here to Nisswa. All the while, like, what, what can I do with this? And the other, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, I talked to a friend of mine. I said, Scott, what can I do with this? He's like, well, you know, you could, you could, make, a, you could make a bench out of it, you know, kind of cut it in half, make a bench. You could, uh, you could make a stool out of it, you know, carve it, you know, make a stool out of it, maybe some shelves. So Scott took the log and milled it into 2.25 inches, or nine quarters, thick shelves. Kept the live edge with the beaver work, and we put them in on Friday. We put them in on Friday, okay? They look cool. They're absolutely amazing, okay? So as we were putting them in, you know, Scott's like, okay, where's the electricity in this wall? And I'm like, well, it's here and here and here. And he's like, okay, we should be safe. Drill the hole, bam, blows the circuit, you know? So my fault, okay? So while he's doing his work, I fix it. And, but I had to tear apart a bunch of stuff, right? I had to tear apart a bunch of stuff just to get, and so we pull the new line, and, and we get the juice working again, throw a bullet to it, it and, and Scott's like, well, let's finish this up. And I'm like, ah, that's no problem. You get going. You get going. I'll finish the job later. I can do it. <laughs> it it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. David Dunning and Justin Kruger, um, psychologists from Cornell, okay, had this 1999 paper entitled, check this out, Unskilled and Unaware of It. <laughs> How difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to inflated self-assessments. And their whole research, okay, was on this idea, the ability that a person, okay, possesses to overestimate their own ability to do something, okay? The initial, original research was done in the areas of logic, okay, in grammar, 
and in humor. And what they discovered is that people thought they were more logical than they really were, better grammarians, and funnier than they actually were. Okay, since that time, the research has been expanded to include emotional intelligence, okay, um, emotional intelligence, financial acumen, and firearm safety. I love this one because I grew up with guns and I know a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, it's right here. And I'm just like, really? Are you accurate with that thing? Oh yeah, I'm super accurate with that thing. Okay, here's what I know. Okay, my brother had this little uh, Beretta um, uh, and it was uh, a Beretta that uh, was manufactured for Browning. Okay, and a little 380 ACP 9mm short if you want. Okay, and this thing had a sweet little barrel. Okay, just tiny little gun. Okay. I was, no longer am, but I was a pretty good shot, okay? This thing, okay, at a distance of like 25 paces would throw a pattern like this big, okay? So now I talk to people, I'm like, ah, oh, you're a pretty good shot with that. Oh yeah, I'm a great shot. Dunning-Kruger would say, you're probably not as good a shot as you think you are. People are gonna be deeply offended. Stop. Stop. Just stop. I would argue from personal anecdotal experience, the Dunning-Kruger effect is much more likely to happen in males than in females. <laughs> Do it yourself. Can I get an amen from the ladies? Yeah, yeah right. I mean, you, we live. We live with you. And why you let us live with you, I have no idea. Oh, yeah, I can fix that. No, you can't. Oh, I'll take care of that. No, you won't. No, I'm good at that. No, you're not. Come on. Text today. We're going to take an Easter break for three weeks, pivoting to John from Hebrews, walking with Jesus up to and through and out the other side. So if you want to join me in this blue-colored book called the Bible, page 898, starting with verse 45. Chapter 11, St. John speaks, writes, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. It's kind of a slam. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Depending upon who you were in the first century, you either liked Jesus, you liked how he spoke, you liked what he did, you liked the lifestyle that he lived, his great hair, his kind eyes, or you didn't like Jesus. You thought of him as a rabble-rouser. You thought of him as someone who didn't understand the political exigencies of the first century. You thought of him as someone who said really illogical things, like, I and the Father are one. Blasphemy. And let's not even talk about the family of origin. Come on, we know how babies are made. The Spirit of God coming over you? There might have been a spirit involved, but it wasn't God. The promise of God could never be wrapped up in something that looks like that. Two, how can you not see that this is the promise of God? People are literally able to see. People that are blind are able to see. The prophecy said, when that happens, dead people are alive. For real, he just raised a dead man. Check out earlier, the few verses right above. People that saw what he did said, that is real. That is life. That is the activity of God. What do we do when we see the activity of God? Do we see the activity of God? Do we see God at work all around us? Because God is at work all around us. Sometimes it's challenging, right? Because the activity of God interfaces with a world that is frequently violent, both at a local and a regional and a national and an international level. In the day, some of the people looked at Jesus and said, This is real. And I want that in my life. I want God in my life. While others looked at the life of Jesus and what he did and how he experienced and how he healed and how he spoke. And they said, yeah, that's real. It's a real threat. It's a real threat to how I live my life. As we come to this moment, historically, there has to be a willingness to acknowledge that something unique is going on just by virtue of the fact that we are in this space. And if God invites us to change our lives, don't you think God knows what he's doing? Putting it another way, if I choose to follow someone who is guaranteeing eternity, am I really worried about what I will do for the next 5, 10, or 15 years? Dovetailing into the faith notion from the book of Hebrews, do I look forward with hope or with fear? 
Who is Jesus? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? And then some true, true dark words. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, you know, nothing at all. Okay, so now this council thing, the council is the Sanhedrin, okay? The Sanhedrin is a group, they think, of about 70 folks um, drawn from um, um, a Jewish faith tradition, a Jewish uh, ethnic heritage. Uh, the vast majority were, were of the tribe of Levi, okay? They were priests. There was also some Pharisees who were probably functioning more as uh, experts in law, um, scribes, okay? Um, and then there was probably um, a group um, in the Sanhedrin, although a smaller minority, of the landed gentry, okay? The folks, the, um, the individuals who had the land, who had the money, who had the resources, okay? And so this Sanhedrin was kind of, they functioned as a, uh, kind of like if you want to think of a unicameral government, okay? They were all everything, okay? They were the, the legislative, they were the executive, and they were the judicial branch, granted their authority by Rome, Okay, so that's the council. The council's being drawn together, okay? And Caiaphas is kind of the poobah of all of this, okay? He was the high priest. He was uh, appointed by Valerius Gratis in, um, in some time, of, I don't know, he served for like 18 years. And while you had to be from the tribe of Levi to be the high priest, often, especially during this time, it was a political game, right? And so you were appointed because you had curried favor with the Roman overlords, okay? So that's kind of some of the things that are going on here. Out of that, Caiaphas says, you don't know what you're talking about. He's going to die, which is pretty bold to say and pretty dark. And then he says something wonderfully intriguing, right? Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then the text gives us a piece that perhaps was not there to begin with, certainly was not on Caiaphas's mind when he said these words. In his role, he was acquainted accorded a unique responsibility. He was to speak for God. He was to prophesy for God. And his prophecy is 100% accurate. His understanding of it is not, oh, to be modest in one's estimation of oneself. He, he knew a little, thought he knew a lot, knew a little. As the high priest, he was given a message from God that he was to repeat. And from John's perspective, this is so uniquely filled with meaning that this death would have a very special role in the history of the children of God, drawing them together. And God says, yep, that's exactly what I would say. But the perspective is radically different. It is better for you, Caiaphas says, that one man should die for the people. And the die is cast. So they're going to kill him. It's just a matter of when. 
verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus waits for a time, avoids the city. But that will only be for a short period of time. The people and the priests, the Sanhedrin, everyone, they're all drawn to the showdown that will most certainly come. The Passover, this is the third one that is mentioned in the book of John. Jesus hit the first one, skipped the second one, will be in town for the third. No way to avoid that. Both sides recognize how critically important it would be for Jesus to celebrate the Passover. Both sides know here is where the sharp edge of the conflict will take place. And here is where Jesus will willingly advance. Understanding that his life has purpose beyond its simple day-to-day existence. The Passover, the celebration of the victory of God from antiquity, the execution of deliverance from Egypt so many years ago, relived, embraced, remembered, will take on a new meaning. The sacrifice of the lambs in the temple will soon end, but the need for the sacrifice of the lambs in the temple will be over. One lamb for all time, for all future, for all past, innocent blood shed for a purpose one last time. Jesus will be at the sharp end of the spear. It's a challenge, right? Because we live in a day and a time and an age where often we can minimize the amount of discomfort we experience in life. We want to do what we can to avoid the sharp edge of the spear. We want to avoid what we can to avoid that point at which there is conflict between good and evil. And make no mistake about it, there is an ontological battle between good and evil. In its being, God is good. And the forces that are opposed against God are evil. It is in their being. That's what the word ontological means. I want to tell you, it's not comfortable, but we don't have to be afraid of being at the sharp end of the spear. We don't have to be afraid of being at the point where good and evil collide. And it's not how you think it is sometimes, right? but in the day-to-day experience. We don't have to be afraid of the sharp end of the spear. The sharp end of the spear is often painful. It often means we're dealing with something directly, deeply personal, deeply real. We're wrestling with the claims that God makes on our lives and the claims that evil makes on our lives. Jesus willingly advances, willingly takes on the sharp end of the spear. A willingness to go to a dark place. A willingness to embrace what has been the plan from the beginning. 
because of the example of Christ, you don't have to be afraid of the sharp end of the spear. The promise of God, the hope of God, the faith of God. In this story, in this history, there is ontological good and ontological evil. And the irony is they want the exact same thing. It would be more ironic if it wasn't so tragic. God the Father and the enemies of God are aligned, at least in terms of action. Although the idea that God has, that was to put flesh in Jesus, is really quite simple. But beyond the comprehension of the leaders of the day, they couldn't imagine it. They overestimated their own ability to understand a very simple concept. And even though good and evil want the same thing, they are not aligned on outcome. even though they are aligned on the death of Jesus Christ, evil always wants death to be the end of hope. Always. It's not. Evil wants death to be the end of the dream, the end of optimism, the end of anything good happening next. Good, through the life and example of Jesus Christ, declares that death is the beginning of hope. And in our experience of it, death doesn't have to destroy hope. In fact, it gives hope more resolve. Good declares that there is this special reality that moves death beyond tragedy. Good declares that there is hope and there is unity, unity. That when people are forced to face tragedy, face death, there can almost be there can almost be a defiance. There can almost be certainly a resolve. There can almost be the notion of dear death, you do not get to destroy my hope. It's one of those things that I'm learning and still learning. And to be sure, I'm almost certain that I don't know as much as I think I know. In fact, I think I know less than I actually know. Part of it was my mom, she would frequently say when I was under her roof, quit being a know-it-all. I don't know most things. 
In fact, I would say what I don't know dwarfs what I do know. And frequently, I am most flummoxed by the woman I love. I don't know why bad things happen to good people, and I don't know why good things happen to bad people. I don't know causation. I don't know why the world in which we live in has so much death. I do think without God it would be much worse. And I do think there is this battle in which we are invited to participate where we are at the sharp edge of the spear. And I do know that I can sing in the face of tragedy, not because I am happy, but because I have hope and I am resolved that death, while taking life in the temporal sense, does not get to win forever. And I know that even through the most challenging times, in a way I can't possibly describe, but can feel deeply the presence of God is right there. And likewise, I know God seems to frequently depend on his people to do the correct things. And when they don't, bad things happen. And here's what I think, in which I have more confidence about than anything else, that Jesus died so I don't have to experience eternal death. And that makes me want to follow Jesus with my life. It's what I know It's how I try to live. Please pray with me. I just ask that you listen to the spirit and the quietness of the moment. that seems like an odd thing to you, just ask God, I want to hear from you. I want to know that you're real. I want to know that you're close. Father, our experience of life often leaves us scratching our heads. In the most intense of times, it leaves us staggering with a weight we can't possibly imagine how we will carry. And yet we are drawn to the example of your son and the promise of faith and the hope that is inherent when we follow you. Hear our hearts, meet our needs, 
honor our commitment to be your people. In Jesus' name.